Well, hello, Line Podcast listeners. Sorry the podcast is getting out to you late, as is the entire dispatch. As I'll go into in the podcast, I've been working remotely even more so than usual while my home is renovated, and I've been limited by the slower speeds of rural internet. So getting this to you a bit late, because it took a long time to upload, but getting it to you all the same. Lots that we talk about in this edition of the Experimental Podcast by myself and Jen Gerson for The Line. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll talk to you soon. Jen Gerson, as I live and breathe, um, it has been quite the week. Why is the last two weeks of summer the least restful part of summer? Because everybody's trying to get everything crazy done at the same time before school starts. So no one rests. Like, I don't know about you, but I've been completely refinishing a bathroom. Uh, my house is being renovated now. I'm, I'm having someone do it. One thing I've learned this week, you want to know, if I were to tell you, you can, you can totally screw up 20 square feet of someone's house and you get to pick which 20 square feet to cause maximum life disruption. You know what I've learned this week? You do? Oh, kitchen. It's the kitchen. No. Oh. Staircase. Oh, yes. So yes. we have an old World War II era house that we did renovate uh, eight years ago, but it needs a bit more work. And one of the things that needs work is that pre-drywall. So the walls are plaster and some of the plaster along the side of our staircase had cracked. So they've come in and they've been repairing it. No problem. It's going to look great. But if you can't go up and down your stairs, yeah, your house is useless. So... My wife, I've been working all this week at my parents' house while my wife has been taking the kids out to various things. My wife is spending the day-to-day at uh, her brother's place, my brother-in-law's, and I've I've gone up to the cottage. And like, hey, it's always nice to be here, but I'm not here to relax. Like, I'm not boating and jet skiing today. I'm working in a house that has a functional staircase. So I'm actually able to get stuff done today. So I want to throw something at you. And this is a surprise. I have to, you, you don't know what I'm about to bring up here, but okay. I want to get your, your unbiased reaction to this. Okay. And this is All something right. on my radio show this morning, John Wright was on with me from Meru Public Opinion. He's, uh, he's, he's a regular for us too. He, he appears in our, our videos and broadcasts and whatnot. And we kind of fell into a conversation. It wasn't something we planned to talk about, but the conversation led us naturally there. A few months ago, uh, I wrote a series of articles for TVO.org, where I'm a columnist, and I was looking at the energy transition, getting off fossil fuels, moving to cleaner electricity. And the purpose of the series of columns was just to look at the math. If we want to displace X fossil fuel in Y quantities, we need Z kilowatts of clean electricity. All of this stuff is possible. It's also incredibly goddamn hard. And it's going to take a long time and it's going to be really expensive. And I had this little throwaway line in the column that I've been thinking about ever since I wrote these. And this was in like March. The reason so many of our debates right now are crazy and insane and hostile is because we are in a place where none of us see solutions. So we're just yelling at each other. Mm. Okay. Interesting theory. Like, and I think so the climate debate is one of the weirder debates out there in terms of just the angry reaction that happens when people start talking about this. And I'm seeing it happen now with COVID stuff uh, or more broadly healthcare stuff where we have no good options. Like someone's going to get 
totally the short end of the stick here and they're going to get it really in a sensitive space right now in ontario we're freaked out ford wants to save the hospitals by moving out people who do not need to be there and getting them into a long-term care home even if it isn't their preferred long-term care home for community reasons access to family language we're, we're in the realm of like tough decisions have to be made here yeah and i and i'm wondering is one of the reason everybody's so miserable with each other these days is because on some level we all know these problems we've backed ourselves into there are no easy solutions and rather than bite bullets and own up to that we'd rather just yell at the other guys yeah this is this is your fault because you're an evil conservative and you've cut health care well we we haven't cut health care before us was the liberals they got us into this position and like it's it's just much easier to do partisan hand partisan sort of shit flinging than it is to be like yeah look we're gonna have to move grandma to uh hamilton it's just what it is and we'll move her back to toronto when we can yeah. But in the meantime, we need to put someone who have got a stroke a, we have in to, that hospital bed. We actually have to learn, we actually have to figure out, we got to triage our priorities here. And like grandma's, you know, uh, proximity to X or Y is not, is not taking precedence over someone who needs cancer care tomorrow. Something, because something like I've written about this before in the United States, actually, you could actually get super majorities of Americans to agree on compromise positions on a lot of issues, mm -hmm. but all the political incentives pull to the left or the right. Yeah. So there, there's almost no incentive to meet in the middle and work on that. Yeah. I don't know if we have exactly the same problem in Canada, but I just look at the, the, the people yelling and screaming and being completely shitty to each other. And it's not just random randoms on Twitter. So just uh, a little bit before we um, started talking today, a liberal parliamentary secretary, Chris Biddle, I think his name is, he's, I don't even remember, he's, I don't even remember what he's for. He's kind of a, he's kind of a nobody, but he apologized for accusing uh, Professor Michael Geist of being a racist because Michael Geist had made like a policy criticism. And well, I mean, you'll notice that Michael Geist has become like uh, uh, one of the the most hated figures among the the liberal partisan crowd um, because he's not only an enemy, he's a heretic, right? Like he's a he's a well respected um, professor who absolutely shits on all of liberals policies on telecom and people pay like myself pay attention to him so like there have been overt and covert efforts to absolutely undermine his his credibility you know implying he was paid off implying he's a racist i mean like like the shit that gets thrown at geist is really quite incredible and it feels very personal we could probably fix some of our problems if we were willing to admit we had problems and that there was no easy solution and i think in the absence of easy, pain-free solutions, what we're left with is bullshit and anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So you're also not nobody actually really wants to fix the problems. Like that's the other problem is that like we we've actually incentivized status quo decline over resolving issues. I think about that a lot, and I wonder. I don't know if we've incentivized decline, but maybe what we've done is we've disincentivized progress where i like, remember like we, we talk about this sometimes this is memification of politics there's no actual reward for doing the hard work of fixing a problem the reward is saying the right thing about the problem yeah that's right and yeah. so the, the so the end result is that you just wind up chipping away it's for example health the healthcare situation with these kinds of half measures um that piss people off in the margins 
uh, and don't doesn't engage in the wholesale reform that everybody needs to be happening. I mean, like, Ontario in particular has had this problem since, oh, whatchamacallit, what was the, the commission that looked at Ontario's finances? And was oh, like, the Drummond Report. The Drummond Report. Like That's this goes back to the, the Drummond Report. Like, oh yeah, by the way, you you fixed none of those problems identified in the Drummond Report. Yeah. Like n- none of them. You still, your spending is still out of control. Your taxes are still too, like, you know what I mean? Your efficiencies haven't been found. Like it's just, you are still, cat- cat- you know, cat- um, uh, charging headfirst over the fiscal cliff, um, which will start to bite when the interest rates start to go up. Um, and rather than bite the bullet and do the hard thing and fix the issues, it's just been, yeah, we'll just, we'll just keep doing this. The, the reason I led with energy and uh, that TVO series I wrote, and I mean, just for an, an example, and I was not editorializing when I said this, it's like, if we want to displace every liter of gasoline used in vehicles in the province of Ontario, this is how many kilowatt hours we'd need. What would it take to generate it? And I found out we could do it with wind power. All we would need to do is keep our current level of wind power generation and then install another 800%. Oh, no problem. So like sure, when sure. You, you can quantify I mean, this. most most of most of northern Ontario is basically not populated anyway. So just the windmills up there. I know. Just raise it over. There, there, I, I led with energy because um, th- this the German chancellor, like, there were two big meetings in Canada this week. Mm-hmm. The German chancellor came through to talk about energy for Germany because the Germans are starving for energy and they desperately need it and they can't get it from Russia. The other meeting, which didn't get as much attention, was the NATO secretary general was here. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he toured a series of Canadian military facilities. So I find this a really interesting lens into this because the Germans are saying, we need energy, we need energy, we need energy. And, and the prime minister is like, it's great to have you here. So glad you could make it. Canadian German relations are strong. And German guys, like, can we get some energy? And the prime minister is like, we have a proud relationship. Like, I was speaking on my show, uh, my show earlier today with um, Stephen Chase, the Globe and Mail, and I think he just he said it exactly right. He said, "If you're the prime minister, for all the talk, we, we, for all the talking we do about the conservatives, the prime minister's political problems are on his left, um, where the NDP keeps kind of like there's a real push and pull between who's the real progressive in Canada." And the prime minister needs the NDP to like him more than he needs the conservatives to like him. There's no, we've got natural gas. We could in theory build infrastructure to export it, but he's not going to touch that. So we're just left at this weird meeting where the German chancellor is like, could we have some energy please? And the prime minister is like, great to have you. You know, but uh, now I will kind of defend the prime minister a little bit on this one. And that is, it isn't, there are technical hurdles here. It's not like you can just take natural gas, stick it in a barrel and put it on a ship, right? Or you need if, to pipe it, then you need to liquefy it. Yeah, you need to pipe it, you need to liquefy it. And that these are um, significant technical hurdles that require, you know, probably multi-billions in investment in order to get the infrastructure in place and can't be done by winter. <laughs> you, know, like, um, you know, this is stuff, this is stuff that, that, that takes years. And the question starts to be, okay, well, is this crisis going to be acute enough for long enough for Canada to make enough money to, to, to be worthwhile to do this. Um, I think that starts to be a, a, a bit of an open question. I mean, you notice that there's not a lot of private sector companies banging down the door to spend a couple billion dollars to create the infrastructure to do this. Does America maybe have an excess capacity? I think that's an interesting question. I don't know. I'd have to look it up, but like shipping this over to America might be a, a better uh, short-term solution. Well, um, even if we don't get the, the, the cash up front, but I mean, 
there not only is there no political incentive and political will for the for the prime minister to do this um there's also significant investment and technical hurdles and challenges that they would have to overcome to do this not to mention the fact that it requires you know pipelines which i mean we all know that that the liberals are in no particular rush to champion that's Even why if they are I, natural gas pipelines, not oil pipelines. You're giving more credit to the prime minister than I am then, because the prime minister had made this week, and he used this exact term. He said there's no business case for this pipeline, or at least there traditionally hasn't been. The business case does not exist in a universe separate from the politics. There's mm-hmm. no business case in Canada for this stuff because any business in Canada has factored in yep. massive regulatory dysfunction yeah, into their business right. case. That's right. So like, if, if we had a political and regulatory regime in place that would enable relatively rapid approvals, environmental assessments, and then construction of pipelines. Yeah. And it wasn't going to be bogged down by literally a decade of. Yeah. yeah. Then maybe we would still look at that and go, ah, you know what? The business case still isn't here without those things. The business case definitely isn't there. And it's, I don't want to let the politicians off easily. Like you can't poison the business environment and then say, well, there's, say no, there's business no business case. case. Proposal. I mean, there's that, there's, there's an argument to there. I mean, like, look, if Trudeau actually wanted to invoke the emergencies act ah. and bulldozer through um, that entire process to get the infrastructure in place, he probably with government investment to a government funded liquid natural gas facility, we could probably do that. Um, I'd have to go look at the language for an international emergency because there's four things you can yes. invoke an emergency. Uh, the emergency. I think, I think emergent, an international emergency would probably qualify. There's a war emergency. There's a public order emergency, which is what we used uh, in in Ottawa. Yep. There's a public welfare emergency, which basically would be a disaster, like a, a, a not like not an act of war, but a disaster. And that other one is an international emergency. And I'd have to go look at the language again, but that's actually a cute idea. Because- but like, let's be blunt. But the, then the other starts, the, the technical questions still remain. I still don't think you can get this done in six months. I still think that this is a, this becomes no. not only a very expensive thing to do, but it it still requires a couple of years, right? So I'm not expect. sorry, I started to cut you off there. I didn't expect the prime minister to have a solution in six months. I just find the... I watched some of the press conferences or, and read some of the remarks after just the way the prime minister doesn't want to talk about it is what jumped yeah. out at me. Yeah, no, and you're probably quite right. I mean, I think that the the, the fundamental point here is that, you, you know, you can't go around poisoning the business environment and then being like, no business case. I think that's correct. Um, there there might have been a business case. You know, I mean, let's not forget that actually during world wars, what we typically did is we created just massive private public partnerships where we took over private companies said, you're doing this. I mean, this is not unheard of. This is this is we can mobilize intense resources um, uh, in emergency situations if we have the will to do so. We just clearly don't. We don't. And then I think this is why people get angry so much of the time. Yeah. Because we know on some level that, like, I, what happens to an intelligent, productive, capable person who would be in a different environment? totally able to do something productive and helpful and you put them in an environment where they actually can't i think they call people racist on twitter yeah like they get pissed off it's the it's the rage of the uh the emasculated underclass right or i'm trying to remember that line from poetry what what was it like uh the spirit is willing you know but (laughs) So yeah, the spirit is willing, but the, the, the politics are unable. Yeah. All right, we got, we got a few things on the list today. I just wanted to lead with that because I think 
in trying to understand why we're all so angry at each other, well, there was also that report a few days ago, I'm sure you saw it, that religion has been replaced by partisan affiliation. Oh, yes. So that's been very obvious for some time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so speaking of partisan affiliation, uh, we, I did want to chat a little bit about the crazy McCrazy pants happening at the um, federal leadership level. Um, there is also crazy McCrazy pants stuff happening at the provincial leadership level here in Alberta, but I've already overdone myself on that. Um, so two points is that you had uh, Leslie Lewis sort of start to invoke the Nuremberg Code in describing, you know, vaccine mandates and the, and the like, and you had... Yep. You know, the not crazy one, Scott H. Atchison, who I will shall call Scott the not crazy one, Atchison basically was like, this is cray. <laughs> yeah. you, this is not, you know, this is, you don't compare COVID vaccines to the Holocaust because that's nuts. I mean, Lesson Lewis, I don't want to overstate it. She's has a long history of invoking the craziest of the cray sort of extremist talking points in some of her in, of her um, literature. So I don't think this is off brand for her. Um, but I think it's probably worth mentioning that like, you know, there is a there is a faction of this in the conservative leadership race and it's 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 existing. Like if you want to have a really good sense of what's going on in some really dark uh, what's so da, blah 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 um, da, discords you know, go read Leslie Lewis's campaign literature. Like she's, she's summed up the, 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 the dark discords for you. Um, there's on that note, uh, the, the big issue today or the big sort of talking point this week in Twitter has been the fact that Pierre Polyev was caught, you know, red-handed shaking hands with like the leader of uh, an extremist movement called Diagolon. I don't know the guy's name offhand because I've never heard of the guy and I've never heard of the movement before this became national news. Um, I want to point out that as, as, as much as I'm happy to point out when when Pierre is, is is off the rails, this strikes me as a really bad non-story because I have enough respect for Pierre as a politician to believe wholeheartedly that if he actually knew who this dude was and supported him, he would be smart enough not to appear in public <laughs> taking hands with him in front of a camera. Like, like I just, I don't, think that like I think that the, the Occam's razor solution here is that Pierre was at a public event and was shaking hands with people who came up to him and that's pretty normal for a politician and he just straight up didn't recognize the guy because why would he um I, and also I think it, it furthers my assumption that bluntly I think a lot of people on the left have a much greater familiarity with far-right extremists in this country than people on the right people on the right are generally pretty insulated from just how crazy some of their own side has gotten and they're yeah. They're not paying that much attention to what the crazies are doing. But meanwhile, the people on the left in this country pay like super, like just absolutely iron focused attention to the crazy extremists on the right, and then use that to sort of make their assumptions about like the right wing conservative movement in general in this country, right? Rightly or wrongly. And there's a little bit of both there. But anyway, I, I, I kind of want to not defend Pierre on this one, but like, I, I, I just think like logic dictates on this one that, that Pierre genuinely didn't recognized the guy and was therefore shaking hands with someone who he thought was just a nobody. Um, so doing a bit of a gotcha based on that is kind of lame to me. I have a different view of this. Um, okay. I don't, I don't disagree with what you said, but when this whole thing erupted, I went a little bit off access um, two points. First of all, also this week, there's been 
the uh, the, uh, the federal liberals backing away from having written a check for 130 grand to some anti-Semite. Like I haven't followed all the details, but for some like anti-racism training program that was being funded. We, by have, we have a piece coming up on that one next week, so we don't really need to touch it on, on in the in the, in the dispatch, so, I think. But yeah. So basically. With the diagonal on diagonal on or whatever it's pronounced guy plus the anti-Semite. Um, what we're left with here is both conservatives and liberals simultaneously making the same defense, which is we didn't know. And if yeah, we but had, we acted differently, that's a bit of a false equivalency because like some random dude coming to a public event and shaking Pierre's hand is not on the same order no. of yeah, issue as like someone actually getting hired by the government to do and given a check to do anti-racism training like there's a degree of due diligence expected in one of these scenarios and not the other yeah no i agree with that but i think it's not the cabinet minister who does the due diligence one of his staff fucked up yeah i agree and, with that and the the equivalent the i agree like, like i agree these are not directly comparable situations but the idea that you're going to personally sandbag the minister as some people are trying to do is the equivalent of like why didn't Pierre Polyev instantly recognize this guy? Did this he device for news? right, dude? But at the same time, it wasn't just the fact that this got approved. It was that it was news for days and days and days, and we had I think like what four press releases from the minister's office saying, "Well, yeah. we're gonna look into this," as yeah. opposed to a decisive kind of like, "Oh shit, yeah, we didn't realize we fucked up. We fired him." Like that was also a part of the issue. So I think, I think, I think the minister actually does deserve to be sandbagged, sandbagged for the response, if not for the original hiring. Like I, it's, it's, yeah. it's okay to make a mistake in the hiring process and be like, look, we clearly didn't do our due diligence. We screwed up. Clearly this person isn't appropriate for anti-racism training and we apologize. That would have been perfectly fine. And I think this would have been a non-story, but it was the fact that this got strung out for like multiple days with like well we're gonna look into this i guess it got strung out from i mean here's the thing and again this is gonna sound like i'm I, i'm damning with faint praise and i don't intend to but actually i think four days is actually that's probably about as fast as this pmo is capable of moving i'd grant that yeah i'd and grant that. that that's a problem for, like this is a problem we have written about before we like this pmo has overly centralized all yeah. decision making to the point where even though this was an obvious no-brainer catastrophe for the liberals four days is about as fast as they can respond to anything uh yeah. and that that's a problem but yeah. i mean like during the during the pandemic like you and i talk about this a lot the i think the government needed months to get caught up to the present like yeah. they were yeah. behind and it took them months to get caught up this is a known achilles heel for this government they're not nimble they well, stuck at issues management and you'll and you'll, and you'll notice there. what we're not doing is we're not saying that like this the the this foot dragging on this particular file shows that the liberals are secret anti-semites or anything like that. i don't think that's the case i think that that's no. absolute the the much more simple answer here is that you're right the staff member fucked up in firing them they didn't do their due diligence yeah. they panicked when it actually hit the news they didn't know how to respond and then they had to get a a, 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 a response from an overly centralized pmo and they couldn't get something quickly you know what? that i think is the answer yeah, and this is not necessarily unique to the PMO. I have been involved in institutions that are getting killed for a PR disaster, and everybody knows what has to happen, but everybody's covering their ass by making someone else sign off on it first. Yeah. And what and and the thing that everyone knew within thirty seconds had to happen 
doesn't happen for five days. Yeah. That's while the email chains are going around. And, oh, you know, and what? then there's maybe always going to be someone who justifies the remarks yeah. and like, well, maybe in the context of the blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I get it. And then, so, but the, the other big point I was going to make, and like, so the thing I just said was a little bit of an aside. Here's the big thing I think about Pierre Polyev that I don't think people understand. Pierre Polyev is doing all of this deliberately. Not shaking the guy's hand. I agree with you. I think someone walked up to him, he shook his hand, and then he found out when people started going, hey, don't, didn't, didn't you know this guy is whatever? Like, yeah, I mean, but like, I mean like, what's the theory here? The theory is that what, what Pierre's a secret, anti, a secret, super extreme, far-right dude, and so therefore he was shaking the guy and getting his photo taken is like, a, a, like what a dog whistle to, to who like like that doesn't that doesn't add up to me that doesn't make that doesn't make sense as a just from a straight Machiavellian politician point of view that doesn't but, make sense to me but what I think what I think people don't realize about Polyev and I say this not I say this with, with almost grudging admiration every time the Polyev campaign steps in it or P, or Pierre does something done with the with the maybe the exception of Bitcoin which they did seem to go ooh we're going to just pretend that never happened Pierre's response to every single one of these things is to not apologize and to tell the media to go fuck itself yeah that's a strategy that's a strategy like this, this, and, it's a, this and it's increasingly a legitimate strategy from a political point of view uh, Not well, from a democratic point of view, but I don't know about legitimate, but I'll say effective. It's effective, yeah. And th this came up on a panel discussion I was on uh, in, at, a, at a Toronto media thing earlier in the week, which is, you know, why won't why won't Polyev um, uh, condemn and, and apologize and blah blah blah? And it's just, I have this gnawing feeling that the Canadian chattering class and what we could kind of call, generally speaking, the elites are so hopelessly out to lunch, we're, we're going to get collectively steamrollered. Polyev is not going to win the conservative leadership, and he will not then have a chance to win the next election by winning over the Toronto Star editorial board. That's right. Because he, he, he's not apologizing and condemning because he's refusing to play by your playbook, which gives you, which, which denies you the power to set the narrative. It's worse. It's that, but it's also the people he does need love it when you don't play by that playbook yes so not only right. did he have nothing to gain by doing what the cbc and the toronto star want him to and do and expected him to do yeah yeah he also has lots to gain with the people he actually has identified as his needed people by publicly thumbing his nose at the, the, the Toronto Star at a toll bar who I'm, I'm yeah. picking up like, I don't mean literally here I'm just kind of yeah. picking on them somewhat unfairly this is a deliberate strategy and of course it is. and it's something like I, I saw this a lot during the, the the Trump presidency here um uh, well south of the border I should say where like the New York Times are like it is unclear why Mr. Trump has not responded to you fucking idiots like like you can think it's abhorrent you can think it's wrong you can think it's dangerous you can think it's immoral but at least acknowledge it's strategic well i know that but if, if let, like, even just say this like okay so say say polyev does what the media beckons him to do firstly he's giving up power by by doing that and and does condemn dialogue and blah 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 it becomes a when did you stop beating your wife, sir, kind of scenario, right? Because he's now associating himself and his brand with this extremist thing. And like, like, 
oh, he's got to embarrassingly now distance himself from blah, 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 blah. So he's allowing that narrative that he is associated with extremists to set in by, by paradoxically, by condemning it, which is the whole fucking game. That's the point. So his decision to like not play by this playbook and simply not respond to this and dismiss it as, as stupid is st- not only strategic, it's actually smart. Yep. And I have made this point many times before, Polyev understands his opponents way better than they understand him. Well, I'm going to say they, they, he understands his opponents better than they understand themselves half the time. Yeah, probably. I think we, we, we talk often here about expectations being a problem. I honestly think a significant percentage of people who would consider themselves to be informed and educated and um, plugged in Canadian commentators and analysts don't get it. They look at Polyev and they're like, hmm, what could he possibly be doing here? They are so up each other's butts or in, the, in their navels or like, I don't like whatever orifice we want to use here, that they don't understand that Polyev doesn't need them. He yep. needs other people. Yep, and that's right. His, his response to this stuff is different. I'm sure if you had gotten into his ear, and said, oh, whoa, 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 this guy is a big, like, far-right guy. He, lots of toxic stuff. He'd go, oh, yeah, I'm not going to shake his hand. Having shook his hand, he's going to go, okay, well, this thing happened. How do we respond to this? The typical playbook is an apology, a, den- uh, a denial of links, and a denouncement of agenda. The Polyev playbook goes, ah, you know what? That's not going to do anything for us. It's going to alienate yeah, some of the people who like us. It's not going to buy us any credibility with the people who don't like us. Yep. So what we're going to do is we're going to put out a generic statement decrying uh, racism and discrimination, which the campaign did. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to refuse to play by their rules. This will drive uh, some of these commentators, reporters, analysts, et cetera, up the fucking wall. Also, people will see them going up the wall and they're going to love it because that's our guy. Well, Look not only that, but they, that's, that's the other thing that they're misunderstanding about the Polyev strategy. And that is, having the liberal consensus gatekeeper, Laurentian consensus gatekeeper overreact and call him some far right Looney Tunes, uh, uh, crazy uh, um, uh, Trumpian, blah, 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 is literally also part of his strategy. He wants he wants that class to overreact, lose its goddamn mind, because firstly, it gets free publicity. And secondly, because then then his potential followers and voters look at his policy, look at him, spend some time paying attention to him, realize, well, shit, he's not actually really that crazy. I mean, blah, 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 blah. His policy on that is pretty close to mine. That's pretty sensible, which undermines the credibility of the Laurentian consensus class, undermines the credibility of the, of the pundits and gives him de facto credibility. Like it, by trolling the Laurentian consensus class and getting them to overreact, he's actually winning that's 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 the policy. He wants you to overreact. He wants that class to massively overreact and call him a Trumpist, fascist, crazy person. That that that's what he's that's what he's banking on. What I would add to all this is that he uh, is his media strategy is not one of cozy cooperation, which is typically the case. It is one of confrontation. That's right, um, and that's. I mean, and that again, is very Trumpian, and that's very of the time. And it'll work. Yep. And and I, and I fully expect that a lot of our colleagues in the media will fall for it. Absolutely. Because we were very predictable. We, like I said, we're we're too deep in each other's belly buttons. 
Um, Wendy's, the fast food chain, has turned oh, its yeah, yeah, yeah. mascot's hair, red hair, gray in support right. of Lisa Laflamme. What do you think about that, Matt? I think this is the sign the story is played out. Yes, I think the sign the story is played out, one. And secondly, um, I think when we go back and look at the Lisa Flam history uh, story in, in hindsight, we will be able to recognize that it is an absolute masterclass of counter-narrative warfare. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier in the week. Uh, like, like full respect to Lisa, just mwah. Well done. Well, well played. In a weird way, full respect to all of them. I mean, uh, Bell Canada uh, comes out that's looking bad. Like, oh, yeah. They, they are the victim here. But something I was saying to a friend of mine uh, the other day, and she's in strategic comms. She does. She works for one of the big firms that does uh, strategic comms, damage control, things like that. The problem for Bell here is that they've had no winning narrative, mm-hmm. which allows everyone else to uh, use them either as a punching bag or as a springboard for their narrative. Mm-hmm. And Wendy's coming in and changing the color on their Twitter page or whatever they did is cheap, easy, fun, beat up on Bell, gonna not gonna do them any damage. They're gonna milk a little bit of a social engagement boost out of it. A few Mm -hmm. more people are gonna follow Wendy's now. Mm -hmm. A week week from now, there will be people who have completely forgotten the Lisa LaFlamme thing, who will see the Wendy's ad for like the the cheeseburger combo. And then they'll be like, yeah, I'm hungry. That sounds good. Wendy's will sell cheeseburgers to people who will forget why they're following Wendy's in the first place. Yep, that's Uh, exactly right. But I, I think uh, the, the main the main takeaway I had from this is uh, you and I, I think we talked about it last week. I think we talked about how this is going to be a two week story. Mm-hmm. Yep. When Wendy's changed its Twitter image, I was like, okay, we're done. Good. We're That's not done. They'll be, the, they'll be the downslope, but yep. that was the peak. Now yep. there may well continue to be some professional fallout here. There may be other CTV personnel who come forward and make allegations of misconduct or, or, or walk or, the plank or whatever. Yeah. So there may still be stuff, but I think, I mean, it's kind of like the old jump the shark, right? Like yeah. it's like the new jump the shark expression in, in Canadian social media verse should be the Wendy's. Wendy, Everybody Wendy, turn gray, turn gray. Wendy turn gray. Oh yeah. Turn okay. Gray. It's over. Wendy turn gray. Yep. That's, Actually, that's kind of good too, because turning gray kind of works. Yeah. Anyway, that's good. Gray. Um, I don't want to over thing that. I just think that's worth a, a funny little blurb. Uh, I would also like to give a, a shout out to one of our subscribers for giving me a free bike. Okay. So I, I think we have to maybe declare that with our accountant. Like, uh, so basically I was trolling Facebook marketplace because I've become absurdly cheap, just crazy cheap. I try to do everything third or fourth hand. Um, and so I'm looking for my kid's birthday presents because of course my girl's turning three. She doesn't give a shit. Yeah. It's new. Like she can't tell the difference. So I was looking for a bike for her and uh, one of those little balance bikes, those little strider bikes. Sure. So I saw one that looked really cute for like $10. And so I, I sent the uh, subscriber a note and said, hey, uh, can I buy this bike from you? And then she's like, wait a minute, are you Jen Gerson from the line? And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And she's like, I love you, blah, blah, blah. I love disagreeing with your, all of your stuff. You're so, so great. We're, take the bike for free. And I'm like, that's unnecessary, really. I promise I can pay for the bike. It's fine. She's like, you shut your fucking mouth. I'm putting the bike on the goddamn porch. Come pick it up. So um, uh, I don't I don't really name this subscriber because- quote, of course it actually was yes um but anyway I, alberta people are the best people i don't know what to tell you anyway so i don't want to name the subscriber in case you'd be embarrassed by it but uh i i do want to note the subscriber who gave us a free bike gave mom gave me or gave my daughter a free little strider bike i think that was very kind 
if anyone out there has an M1 Garand rifle in good working condition, <laughs> who likes my gun control columns, I've been trying to find an M1 for about nine years, and they're hard to find in Canada these days. So Jen gets a tricycle. I'm looking for a Garand. Thank you. Uh, Thank this- you. Thank you. That little, that little, uh, we, we will take donations in kind is what I'm saying. Anyway, uh, on that note, I do want to circle back to the lucky commission. Have you been, were you paying attention to this week's lucky commission? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, it was th- this week, uh, commissioner Brenda lucky, the national RCP commissioner in recent weeks, she's been testifying before parliament this week. She was testifying before the mass casualty commission in Nova Scotia. So this is a different venue, uh, a different process, but in the aftermath of the of the the disaster in in Porto Peak uh, almost a year and a half ago, the federal government and the provincial government jointly established the MCC, the Mass Casualty Commission, because it was it was on Nova Scotian territory, but it was the federal police force. So they they agreed on this. I did see her testimony this week, and I, I think Jen, I'm just going to repeat to you what I said on Twitter. She's not good at this. No, not very good at this at all. And the other thing that was interesting about the testimony is that when people, when uh, I think one of the lawyers for the victims started questioning her about like the basics of how this thing, how the actual um, mass murder played out and what failed and what the police did wrong, she basically was like, oh, well, it's not my job as a commissioner to know that. Other people were looking into that for me. And the idea that you would be, you know, at a commission testifying and several years after the after the event, you would have no basic understanding of what happened here or what went wrong. And your answer to this was like, quite, I'm quoting here. Well, I think in my role as a commissioner, I generally, and it's not downplaying anything or making something sound less important. You know, with 32,000 employees and over 750 organizations, it's a big organization. And I can't be the one that goes down and make sure everything happens. So I have people to do that. And like, that's right. And if we were talking like 24 hours after the event, that would be a fair response. But like we're years later and presumably you've been prepped to testify at this commission and you don't have, like you haven't done a basic analysis of what's of, of what those people have brought back to you and told you what happened. Like, it's just. Nope. Well, so I, I, mean, I think Lucky said three things of immediate note. One of mm-hmm. them was the one you're talking about here, which is basically, yeah, like I'm not, I'm not firm in all the details. The other thing, well, I guess she said four things to note. So there's that. Then she also at one point uh, was asked, I probably during this same exchange. So I don't know if this is a separate point or just extending the first one. Has anything been done since the attacks in terms of equipment, training, doctrine, personnel levels? No. Because, why? Well, because they haven't finished it yet. So this would be like your like your space shuttle exploded on launch, and you've been you've kept launching them every day, but you yeah. haven't gotten around to doing like an, a, a report into why the thing friggin' exploded on the launch pad here. Well, you know, you're still looking crash, into it. When planes crash, we will ground them until we know why. Yeah. The RCMP is going to work every day year and a half after this thing and the commissioner is acknowledging that to date there have been no equipment policy doctrine or training uh, or personnel changes regard stemming from this okay thanks commissioner well and also she doesn't she other people are looking into this this yeah, is really her job she's got she's got like 750 locations it's a big organization Matt. like i said she's not good at this yeah. like she is not good at she this. maybe the, should not and by this we mean her job she's not good at her job and she should do another job 
Uh, she's not good. Doesn't seem to be good at her job. She especially does not seem to be good at anything involving public comment. Right. Um, Which is a pretty crucial part of a police commissioner's job. Yeah. Yeah. You and I I are communications people. By any other name, what we do fundamentally is communications. And we literally talk at people. That's what we do. Like assholes. And it is possible and I'm not saying this like it's not a stretch. Like there are people I know who are very good at their jobs and they're terrible communicators. Yeah. And either you get them training or you put someone else in the position to do the communicating for them. Yep. This appears to be a situation where Commissioner Lucky is not good at her job and is also not good at communicating. Right. So yeah, it doesn't, she's not good at her job. Yeah. And one thing she said this week, which is that she's getting tired of the questions about political oh. interference. Oh, Pookie. Pookie, um, I know that's tough. It's really yeah. tough. Hey, I, hi, I'm here to testify about 22 murders, and I'm frustrated by the oh, questions. This is so that. many questions about this. Oh my goodness! I don't thing- think every. Maybe we should just cut Lucky some slack or a break from her job, which is running the RCMP. Right. The other, the other thing she said, which was related to this, which was that the political interference stuff was overblown. And meanwhile, I'm sure in Bill Blair's office, they're like, no, no, you don't say it's overblown. You say it's not a thing. Doesn't exist. Like Lucky's whole, Here, look, I said this to you before, Jen. Well, the- there was political interference, but it was, this is all very overblown. It was like, it was, it was like nothing. It was like a teeny tiny, like a, like a soup song of political interference. It was remember hardly I, a thing. Remember I said to you before, the answers we're getting are so carefully phrased, even though they're technically denials, they actually read like confessions. Mm-hmm. Like if you actually didn't do something and someone accuses of it, you go, fuck you. I didn't do that. If someone accuses you of something and you go, well, actually, you know, let's. That homicide was really overblown. Language. Let's get into the language of what exactly you're suggesting here, because I don't think it's quite true. There are some denials that are so carefully worded, they sound like admissions. And Lucky's been doing that for a while now. But I also just think the one insurmountable problem Lucky has is that she told, and she's acknowledged this, this is not denied, that she was telling her subordinates that there was going to be a gun control announcement. There is no reason to do that. There's zero reason to do that unless you're applying pressure. Because it's like, hey, guys, everybody got a coffee and donut? Yeah, everybody's good? All right. Well, let's tick off the agenda. By the way, there's an upcoming federal gun control announcement. All right. What's the first item on the agenda? It doesn't make sense for it to have come up in conversation at all unless like, there is no plausible explanation that I've been able to think of, and Commissioner Lucky certainly has not offered any. That explains why that came up in conversation at all, unless... She's bad at her job. She's bad at her job, and she's bad at... <laughs> so... I think I, that's I think that's us. I think that's the dispatch right there, man. we got a couple of other things um, that'll be in the written dispatch. One of them is going to mm. be about uh, the new Supreme Court yep. uh, nomination. <laughs> There'll be something on um, uh, the, well, it might overlap a little bit what we were talking about earlier. It'll be about natural gas, European energy supplies, things like that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, okay. Why do I have the feeling there was something else we wanted to discuss? We've already gone on too long, man. It's fine. Just 
Okay. Yeah. You know what? As soon as we click disconnect, it's going to occur to me, but uh, it's fine. We'll, we'll go over it. Okay. I'm going to uh, say goodbye to everybody and we're going to stop recording. And then we're going to parcel out the, uh, the dispatch between us. Yep. That's fine. Thanks everybody. I, I think we should, we should uh, not tell people who's writing what for once and then like see if the CFR listeners can spot who writes what dispatch. You and I, over the last two years, we've just done like a sustained Vulcan mind meld because people yeah. are consistently wrong. Trying They're consistently to wrong. It's hysterical. Wrong. Like, like uh, there are some people who could tell. My husband claims he can tell. Some of my really close editors can claim that they can tell. But like, if you, well, I mean, if I put like something that says Vulcan mind meld in, people are gonna go, "Oh, the Trekkie wrote that." Like, we're like, also, so we- and we're we're also pretty convinced that you're doing the gun ones. But like, yeah, they're consistently wrong. It's very funny. Anyway. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Well, okay. One more episode in the books. Late to you, but we hope worth listening to all the same. Have an amazing weekend. And purely as a programming note, as we're going to talk about in our full version of The Dispatch, we will be at our reduced summer publication schedule for next week. We will not do a dispatch next weekend, which will be the long weekend, but we'll come back after Labor Day with the dispatch and we'll be back to a normal publication schedule after that. But for now, enjoy whatever's left of your weekend and we'll talk to you soon.